0: then we'll be right for a week's preparation against Italy and, you know, it's a big game for us because we want to put them to the cleanest. 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 Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Alan's Recap. Today I'm joined by rugby writer Charlie Morgan from The Telegraph. Uh, we're here basically to talk all things rugby, especially the Six Nations, Lions, Tours and everything else in between. So, Charlie, first and foremost, thanks a million for coming on and how's it all with you these days?
1: No worries at all, thanks for having me again. Yeah, all good, kind of just settling down after, it's always probably the most kind of hectic period of the year. Um, even in even in Lions years, probably, but um, just about calming down after all of that, after what was a pretty awesome tournament.
0: Yeah, I think with the pandemic and all that, we needed some sort of entertainment, um, especially with the the football not exactly uh, doing its uh, end of the bargain as a Liverpool fan. So, <laughs> with all that said, like there was a lot to really get your teeth or your head around um, with regards to the different nations and the different different narratives really that have gone on throughout the tournament but I suppose we would better start with England and even as an Irish man it's quite clear that and most people see that like since the World Cup you had probably one of the best international performances against New Zealand followed by the disappointment in the final and ever since then Eddie Jones made uh, the The contract renewal, there was optimism saying, like even out of the press conferences, they were saying we want to be the best team ever, the most entertainment team. And they've just been, you know, stop, start ever since. And there's been some very poor performances, some glimpses. And that kind of followed into these six nations. And on the back of that now, you've got pressure on Eddie Jones. You obviously have the Saracens backstory that's helping matter. So... Mm -hmm. In your view, and even from chatting to people around you and people within the game, like what is the reaction been to england 's performance after the six nations
1: but oh, it's so cluttered, and you kind of kind of um, touched on it there. The amount of different storylines going into it has just been it's been a kaleidoscope and um, i'd say i mean the elephant in the room is whether or not Jones stays I think he does stay because yeah. I think and I think what um, what counts in his favour is that they've had a similar blip in 2018 and he's come through it and he came through it by kind of revamping selection, by picking Curry and Underhill and changing their tactics totally into a kind of kicking team that relied on um, relied on defence. That got them all the way um, to a World Cup final. And that kind of shaped that performance you talk about in against New Zealand. Um, that was uh, an example of Eddie Jones thinking ahead of the curve. And it's whether he can do that again, I think that um that revamp has given him the kind of ammunition to kind of say you know that's that's what i'm capable of that's what i can do again but i kind of to go back to all the storylines leading into it you're absolutely spot on to mention that that kind of all of this started in 2020 and they actually start start obviously started feels like ancient history now but they started six nations with a the last twenty twenty six nations with a blip losing to France, um, after kind of promising I think that was the Six Nations that they they promised to be the greatest team that the world has ever seen. Yeah. Next <laughs> they beat um beat Ireland and Wales and then the next um and then sorry, before that scraped past Scotland. But the narrative after the pandemic um was that they wanted to put smiles on faces and now there's I think the the means by which they tried to do that was trying to win every game and make sure that there, there's kind of footage of Owen Farrell leaving, leading a meeting where he's saying that, um, pointing out the, the previous teams who have got to World Cup finals and how they've stuttered in the subsequent World Cup cycle. And England were desperate to avoid that. And how they tried to avoid that was just this kind of really hard-nosed, really kick-heavy game plan. And the kind of, the, so the warning signs were there in the, they prioritize winning over everything else, it seems. Yeah. And that, whereas, and you know, there's a bit of hindsight bias um, in how Wales went about it, obviously, now given how the Six Nations turned out, but they sort of went the other way, um, partly kind of forced through injuries and things like that. Um, and they've come out of it kind of, they've certainly moved their game on and they're, they're attacking, um, they've, they've expanded, whereas England have almost constricted. And now there have been loads of circumstances kind of leading to that with the Saracens thing, as you mentioned, and, you know, picking a, having to pick a 28, 28 man squad because of um, agreements with PRL and P- Premiership Rugby, sorry, and not having kind of that go between, um, trying to minimize that, um, that go between back and forth from the clubs for the league. Um, all of that and having to pick the Saracens within that, because, you know, it's a big call to omit those Saracens from that squad. Yeah. Um, so all of it was a kind of perfect storm, really adding things like Eddie Jones not being there for that one of the weeks before the Scotland game, because Matt Proudfoot, who was also not there, uh, tested positive for coronavirus, kind of a perfect storm. Um, and I would hope that um, they would, you know, the powers that be at the RFE would take all of that into account. He's still got the players backing for sure, Um well, it seems certainly from what those players are saying publicly um I think to get the public um back on side because i feel, I feel like you know in he certainly lost um portions of the fan base whether it's it's certainly the loud the loud kind of well, whether it's a minority or not i don't know he certainly lost lost a lot of voices within that fan base, and that can be um brought back on side by things like you know putting faith in a new scrum half I think they need to refresh there. I think they need to look at options in the back row and in midfield and at fullback as well. So it's all the way down that spine, which is why why it's been so problematic, really.
0: Mm. And like that is one of the big, well, I would say if you look at most fans or you look at social media, the big thing is he's not picking quote-unquote, the right players or the on-form players. And I remember a few years ago, I had Alex Good on. He had just been European Player of the Year, and he wasn't getting a sniff in, even though everyone in the club game and European game were saying, how on earth is he not playing? Mm. And then you flip that to even current affairs where you've got someone like Sam Simmons, yeah. you even have Smith at Harlequin's playing really, really well. Is there very much a, a kind of mindset within that English camp? And that's probably maybe where the faith in... The Saracens core group, you know, they have money in the bank. They've built up faith through past performances where Eddie Jones just has that trust in them where even if they're not playing well at club or even if they're not playing at all, he's just going to pick them because he's that adamant on them being able to deliver when it counts, even though they're going through a bit of a storm. Well, if you look at, say, someone like Simmons or Smith or whoever, he just has that way where he's like, you haven't proven it to me. Or else, just like Alex Goode said, he just simply doesn't fancy them to uh, achieve uh, wins and win things with England.
1: It's precisely that. I think he's kind of on record, I think, as saying it was more an answer to a question, I think, in a press conference and that's just come to mind. You're telling me now, somebody asked him whether he um, he thought of England as a sort of 13th club, whereby everything else that happens outside of that is kind of, is white noise in a way. And I think that's, that's something that really frustrates fans because they see every week it's almost like what the what's the premiership for. And that um European player of the year gong, it's kind of a real poison chalice because even um sort of before Alex and before Sam you had Stefan Armitage who was tearing yeah. tearing up um, trees for too long and wasn't getting a wasn't getting a look in because of the um foreign players rule. Um it's difficult. It's kind of it's a double-edged sword having all of these players and all of these clubs within your player pool to pick from because every week somebody's going to have done brilliantly in the premiership and there's going to be a narrative and a buzz um, among a kind of very prominent media set. Um, But it is, it is um, very much a hallmark of Jones's tenure. Whereas someone like Stuart Lancaster had was very, um, was very respectful of the, the age grade system in, in, in England and also the, how, the react the kind of how that worked in relation to the to the clubs jones has come come at it obviously as an outsider and it's and has very much been unapologetic in that he he feels that premiership performances that isn't necessarily a correlation between them and and the ability to, to perform at test level and that what that's brought is kind of is quite a big churn of players that have come into the Come into the squad that he's had a look at and then discarded. And someone like Sam Simmons, so that they're kind of. Should, should, we should kind of highlight at this point that England England lost. You know nobody nobody's hearts bleeding for England as far as kind of player resources, but on the verge of the tournament they lost uh, Marla Launchbury and Underhill, who are three kind of very influential yeah. forwards, which kind of dented them a little bit. um And that was you know that was enough for Scotland to get past them. Um, However, you know when you you look at someone like Sam Simmons, to pick him, he's he's one of the ones that's had a had a go at international rugby, and it didn't really quite work out for him. Jones is on record as saying that we'd have to kind of move around our pack and play a little bit differently with him there. You'd probably have to, when he plays for Exeter, Sam Simmons has Dave Ewers doing a huge amount of work. A lot often they pick another kind of a huge guy in Janus Kirsten at at seven. And that works really well for Sam Simmons. That frees him up to do what he's really good at. Um, Someone like, so you can kind of understand how um, he might stay on the outer because Jones would have to revamp the whole back row to, and probably the back five of the pack to to include him. Someone like Marcus Smith, I feel, is a little bit different in that he could slot into a role that someone like George Ford is playing and really refresh things. And he's looked. He, and, and this, the other kind of confusing thing is that Jones has picked him as an, he was a kind of the original apprentice um, when he yeah. turned up, and then for for reasons that we're not really sure of seems to be totally out of the picture that he picked there was a shadow squad which was for players um was a kind of a group of players below um below the six Nations squad who were on the same testing schedules as the first team and there were two other scrum half uh, sorry two other fly halves Jacob Umaga and Charlie Atkinson um who were seemingly above Smith and Joe Simmons in that so it's very confusing but and then you throw in the other kind of curveball is that Jones has given out. Um, I think it's eleven Test debuts since the World Cup now, so he has had a look at some some new players, and, and including included in that are people like Jack Willis and Max Malins, who you'd expect if they settle to be fifty cap players. So he, it's, it's difficult. You, he can never, there's a lot of people to keep happy in England and um, a lot of kind of stakeholders, to use that horrible phrase. So it's it's tough for him. It is a tough job.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, and everyone who's wrote about it from Clive up until even Stuart Lancaster, there's a lot more to it than just picking your best yeah. team. And I suppose just last thing on the English side, like Eddie Jones, he seems like a very deep thinker like whenever i've listened to him give talks or even on podcasts or even from clips of him coaching he seems like very self-reflective and i don't think this is a case where he's just going to analyze it and chiefs might go up to him and be like listen you may need to consider this or that and he's not going to be like listen mate fuck off (laughs) like you know he's not gonna he's not gonna show them the door i think he's going to reflect but it was actually pinpointed uh, to me only a few weeks ago that the attack coach recently left um, England and it always felt that he was, Eddie Jones would always say how he was chasing to be ahead of the curve. He always wanted to be six months, 12 months ahead of the curve and it feels like, as you said, they've just nearly stalled a little. Hmm. And as you pinpointed there, like if you put Laws, Tua Marlar, Marler, launchbury <clears throat> even if George Cruz comes back for the next World Cup, like There's a lot, and even Underhill, like there's countless amounts of world-class players that can be added into that squad. Do you think he may look, he may turn and just look to the coaching staff or even completely revamp the way they play? Because I know he wants to play a bit more fluid, even though everything suggests that they're still a kick-heavy pressure team. Yeah. Do you think he'll have a real big reflection period where he may bring in a new coach? And I know he brought in the South African coach after the World Cup yeah, to right. refresh things, but... Do you think he may need to just go a bit deeper and maybe get in a new face or completely rip out some pages in that playbook and nearly start over?
1: Well, there was, there was a big kind of, as you mentioned, there was a big, turn, there was a fairly big turnover his backroom staff. He brought in Matthew Perafut, he brought in, um, so Scott Wisemantle was the uh, attack coach in the lead up. He's now with Australia. He brought in name yeah. Namor from England 7s and that, to be honest, never seemed like a hugely, wholly uh, convincing appointment. And, Sort of, we mentioned there that in 2020 it was very much kick-heavy. It was, um, you know, relying on. I mean, the archetypal performance was was Ireland at Twickenham, right? They didn't have possession at all. Yet they were forcing errors um, through through kick pressure, through through really muscular defence, and that was where they stopped. Now I do think that Jones feels that the next cycle is going to be more about, he, he uses the kind of continuity and contest at the breakdown. And he felt that last world cup cycle was more about contest, which is why teams like England and South Africa got to the world cup final because they kicked a lot and competed hard kind of in yeah. religion and on the floor. Um, he feels, I think that it's going to be more about continuity this next world world cup cycle. And I do think there are signs, uh, encouraging signs with how England attacked, um, against Wales and against France. Um, Ireland didn't allow them. Ireland didn't, like Ireland were brilliant in Dublin and just didn't allow them to. And therefore, and they had a bit of, there was a bit of kind of, um, uh, dis- there would have been a bit of disorganisation among England's kind of ranks in the in the lead up because they lost Henry Slade and then they lost um, Max Malin. So there's a bit of a backline rejig and, and Ireland dictated to them after the first 20 minutes. But I do think that when you look at a Six Nations campaign, and we'll talk about other teams, I, I imagine a bit later, but mm. that first week, getting over that line that first week just shapes your whole tournament. Now, if England had got over the line against Scotland, they would have probably blooded um, a few more new faces against Italy um, and would have been probably been able to win that game, despite that making those changes. They're two from two. New faces have been looked at and everybody's happy. Um, there, were kind of, there were hints that new bits and bobs are going on with their attack and I think that is what they really have to focus on next and what is important both in terms of that and in terms of um, the new players coming in is this this tour uh, well I, I don't but there's talk that it might be in England but um, these fixtures against um, I think it's America and sorry USA and uh, Canada and there's whispers that they might play Scotland in a friendly as well this summer while the Lions is going on because in 2017 um England brought kind of a really young squad to Argentina and that's where Curry, Underhill, Mark Wilson um, were all kind of unearthed. Yeah, so That's the kind of parallel and that's what we'll be hoping to happen this summer.
0: Yeah, good point. And as you were saying there, just focusing on, as I said, you could pretty much spend 45 to five hours on each team and that even includes Italy and whether or not they should be in the competition. Yeah. But with, say, Ireland, they... <clears throat> What I found with nearly every team bar, probably Wales, you probably have more questions than answers at the end of the competition than you did at the start. And with Ireland, like from a a journalist point of view, even personally, I know some of the players in the setup, it always felt and even like here in Sexton after games, there was huge amounts of trust in the process that was happening and there was... Huge frustration because the World Cup didn't go according to plan. There was that bedding period where Farrell had you know, the chances to play a different team, rejuvenate the squad, didn't really do that, didn't really get results. There wasn't really an identity. And then you see throughout the campaign where people want Ireland to kind of change how they're playing, not kick so much. And then I'd say with the Wales game, with the Omani red card, that kind of, throughout the script even though they almost won that game and then it ends in a heroic uh, defeat sorry victory against England so like just even your take on the Irish setup because I think now there was a lot of pressure on Andy Farrell going into those last game last two games really and a lot of questions were kind of being brought up about his future and even my cat too but I think with that win against England that's going to give them time and time to an extent where they will be staying, they will be the men leading towards that next World Cup, but like how have you assessed Farrell and even Kat and the other coaches and their impact on Ireland because as I said, there's been some performance where you're like, Jesus, this is really, really positive yeah. and then there's been other performances where you've kind of been scratching your head going, are we just going to keep going backwards?
1: Yeah, I, I mean you've hit the nail on the head there, I felt like the jury was still out until that, until that England game, despite the Wales performance actually being really admirable in lots of big in lots of ways, and how long ago does that Billy Burns miss touch feel like now? It's it's crazy yeah, swing moments there were in that Six Nations tournament is just mm-hmm. nuts. Um, the build up to um, I always always feel like England Ireland games especially are kind of a won and lost on if you can have one or two passages of really clinical attack, the rest of the game and you get a lead then the rest of the game is kind of um, almost becomes yours to lose and that and that period um, well that the uh, first phase strike move for uh, Earl's try and then kind of more impressively because it was it felt like multi-phase like we've seen from Ireland before mm. but with a few more bells and whistles that are kind of that you know you could say oh that's what oh that's what Mike cat's been doing you know that's what he's been yeah. doing um, so the build up to Jack Conan's try was brilliant because it was the variety and it was um albeit an England side without launchbury and without Underhill, those kind of really big a couple of really big bodies there, it was precisely where Ireland have lacked in in the previous four meetings against against um England. It was that that little bit of kind of variation on top of um to allow them to win those collisions. So I'm thinking of the um I'm gonna get this wrong here, I think it was a burn pull back to sexton to furlong to and then an offload standard like that l- tiny little instant that's just really nice and it's really yeah. fluid and that's what that's what you that's what you need to to kind of because ireland are going to have weapons against size that they can um they can out muscle because there are sizes they can out muscle for example for instance scotland the, the kind of previous week against um against england you're going to need to be a little bit cuter and they were so that was really really encouraging
0: Yeah, and I'd agree, it was very much and I remember even Joe Smith, under his reign, it was very much if things don't happen in the first phase two max three, they're either going to kick it or else they're going to concede a penalty while with this team, especially against England, what was great to see was the kicking game was brilliant even the special play with Uh, conan to earls that strike play was there and then as you mentioned which i thought was the most impressive part of the game was the ability to go 15 20 phases and lead to seven points against like one of the best defenses in in world rugby but more importantly as you said it was kind of that the ability to go when they go out the back when they give it to that distributor they have multiple options because i've always felt and it's always been apparent with ireland the organization outside of that pot of three, never really flourished, never really troubled defenses. There was always one-out runners, or there were always just skill errors. And to see that actually work under pressure in a big, high-stakes game was very encouraging. And just even moving on, even just to broadly even speak about the rest, like it is very much, and there was a piece done there in the paper about how all the coaches really in the competition bar. Italy. it was mentioned that at some stage or another their jobs have more or less been on the line you look at Gregor Townsend after the World Cup people wanted him gone Eddie Jones as you referred to I think it was 2018 or 19 people questioned him people question him now Andy Farrell's question a few weeks ago Wayne Pivak was getting absolutely slaughtered about (laughs) six seven months ago
1: yeah
0: and one way or another some people are in the in the pressure cooker the others are now in the honeymoon period like where do you see like even the likes of wales even scotland and even france i'd put it into it. where wales the still question mark saying well they got lucky with two big decisions that led to red cards that maybe got them over the line then when they really needed it against france they didn't have it then when you talk about france you go well they didn't have it against england and them and then they also blew it against Scotland mm. and then also vice versa with Scotland when they finally had a bit of pressure on them they lost against Wales lost against Ireland and then ultimately bounced back with a great win away to France and obviously with the the first win against England so like it's a very much a not even a sticker twist uh, period for all these teams but like a really pivotal moment for pretty much those big five nations like the next six to twelve months heading towards that World Cup is going to absolutely make or break the coaches' reputations and even those playing squads'
1: reputations. Completely, I think. I think everybody, every year, every, as you mentioned there, everybody will look back on the Six Nations as far as you know missed opportunities. So Scotland beating England set themselves up, and then they would have been absolutely sick to lose to, to lose to Wales at home, and then and then to Ireland. Um, so, you know, they've got. It's almost as if. Two historic performances, and they've come forth, and that's going to look yeah. so crazy looking back in in the future. Wales, you'd say that the, the big question mark would be the transition that they they have kind of they've got players that have bridged that gap. So Lou Lou um emerged, looks looked brilliant. Kieran Hardy at nine, um, Elliot D has been a bit more a bit more kind of prominent off the bench. Um, you'd say when they might be heading for, for a kind of period where there's a blanket and a few of them retire. I'm thinking Alan jones especially just he's going to be Alan jones and, and Ken Owens. Like when those two, when those two guys kind of step away, there's going to be a lot to kind of a big void. France yeah. is kind of, again, they flattering to deceive a bit because they look, they just look like they have all the weapons and not only that, they have a sound kind of strategy to go off as well. You know, they're patient with their kicking game and their, you know their defence coached by Sean Edwards so they've got those fundamentals and then everything else on top of that and yet still um fell away after a good start against, against England and um yeah, you know, how they lost that Scotland game. Incredible. It's
0: typical France, really.
1: Yeah. Yeah, what do you think? Kind of I mean, I wrote a piece on it. On you know, this is the this is the France crop that are kind of defying all the cliches and then um Bruce Dillon doesn't kick the ball out when you know when <laughs> the in a red for a win. Um it's nuts. So you know, it's um yeah, as you say, kind of missed opportunities, still question marks and it's whether or not, you know, it's how much you kind of um, I think I think the kind of whole notion. I think we've probably spoken about this on on the pod before. How the notion of a World Cup cycle, four year cycle, is kind of a bit skewed now because South Africa just they won it in two years with a kind yeah. of year cycle, one year cycle. Sorry. Um, so it's how much you kind of buy into those cycles, uh, but there's still a lot. <laughs> I think the World Cup will feel like a long way away for all of these sides.
0: Yeah, and I think you're dead right to bring up the South African example. It was always a four year plan and peaking at the right time, but like South Africa's were far too aware, they created players out of nowhere, they brought players back, they even players that wouldn't come back, they still picked and they just they absolutely aced it. So I think it is definitely something to take note of. But to move on from the Six Nations obviously a lot is coming up now it doesn't really doesn't really rest doesn't stop like you just had a pro 14 final there now you're straight into Europe like the European game even the Champions Cup it's now nearly without the juggernaut of Saracens you know Exeter have now emerged Leinster still keep the machine going and going and then you've got as I said the French teams there as well like do you very much is it uh, to me, anyway, it seems a bit more open than previous years. There's not that one or two teams that are just those levels ahead. Like, I'm looking at five, six, seven teams that are really capable on their day of winning this Champions Cup if they get the right run. Because, like, all you need to do is look at Leinster too long. Leinster should maybe get through that, but you never know. Even like a game like Munster Toulouse, it wouldn't shock me if Munster turned up and Toulouse were going into their old habits of maybe blowing up on the road and mm. then all of a sudden monster in with a shout. Um, like, how do you anticipate the tournament kind of shaping up in the next few weeks?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a mad format, isn't it? And it's kind of obviously out of necessity because of the, because of the pandemic, but it's kind of lent itself to the, the quarterfinal, uh, old quarterfinal Heineken Cup weekends, which is class, that you'd have... Um, Four monster games, and they've been yeah. um, sort of one on a Friday, two on a Saturday, one on a Sunday. And this feels like a kind of added bonus. This, this, these kind of, um, yeah, these games over over the weekend. I think, yeah, as you mentioned, they're wider, wider open than it has been previously. Somebody like, um, they watch a lot of Bristol in the Premiership, and they're a yeah, water team. If they get, if they get through that game, they're at home to either Racing or Edinburgh. Um, Racing don't have, um, Finn Russell this weekend at Edinburgh who've got nothing to lose. Um, we've got a few of Scotland's heroes kind of in the Hamish Watson and uh, Duane van der Merwe. So, um, and Richard Cockrell licking his lips. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, just, and, and just and will be, you know, the, the archetypal underdog of a coach. So yeah. um, there's loads of them. Yeah, Toulouse, like, you know, Munster will fancy, given what they did in Clermont, Munster, Munster will absolutely fancy turning over to Toulouse. Um, I think we're set for... There's a potential exit to Leinster quarter, isn't there? Yeah, it's quite cool. Um, which kind of feels unfair that Leinster have got to go away in a in a quarter final. You know, despite despite what having done what they've done, um, it's all it's all nuts. But yeah, I mean the the craziest thing from a kind of Premiership point of view is that Sale lost both of their first two games and are through and are away to Scarlets. Which no disrespect no disrespect, to Scarlets isn't the most intimidating Haunting, yeah, and um, you know Sale have got Sale have got guys like Lou Faf de Clerk. Um, you know anything could happen they'll have Tom Curry back uh, it's crazy it's great fun though yeah
0: no I'm certainly looking forward to it and I think
1: like it will lead
0: on to the next topic which will obviously be the hopeful summer tour of uh, the line series but I do feel especially now like the Six Nations is a huge like it's basically the audition for the lines for a lot of people. Maybe not so much the Saracens guys who will be, as I said, togging out against Richmond and whatnot on a weekly basis from here on in. But like, do you feel like this is just a really big period for some individuals? Like I know with the Six Nations, you'd argue someone like Sexton has cemented himself on the plane, but then say if he had a few poor games in Europe or a few injuries, would people question that? And then vice versa, I know Finn Russell is not available, but say they win their next game and he starts tearing it up for us and does he come back into the conversation? Do you feel like this is really, because I think Stuart Barnes wrote about it or one of the English riders spoke that this is really now the opportunity for some of the guys on the, on the peripheral of the squad or even those uncertain of their place on the plane. This is really the opportunity now to get in
1: Warren Gatlin's eyes. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I don't know what I'm getting personally, but from people that I speak to that do know him personally, he holds a lot of stock in the Six Nations. And you can kind of, you know, those those swing fixtures that you talk about um, down the years, as say, say, um, you know, Ireland beating England in 2017 and Wales beating England in 2013. 2000, this year... Ireland beating England again felt like a big one because I know I think you know again kind of going off what other people have said um, I think Gatlin places a lot, a lot of stock also in away performances and a lot of those England players didn't turn up I kind of um, the buzz at the minute um, certainly on this side of the IRC is like um, players kind of buzz about players playing their way in on the back of Premiership performances and that must seem crazy for kind of coaches players and supporters of other nations especially yeah. consider how English clubs have pretty much bombed in Europe apart from Saracens recently. So that kind of doesn't sit particularly well with me. And I kind of would like to think that those Six Nations performances are what really matters. So guys like Burney Ian Henderson, I'm thinking of, of Irish other Irish players, I think um, slightly unfortunate. Somebody like James Ryan, who's been awesome for this entire kind of um, Lions cycle to then be brilliant against Scotland and then miss that, missed that England game where he could have really kind of put a full stop on, on things. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, those, those Wales guys, that core of that Wales team, um, I think we're going to get to my team in a bit, but you'll see that kind of a lot of them are kind of, I've just haven't been able to get them out of my head when I've been thinking about, you know, how to put together a, a side. Um, I think maybe, I mean, I was at, I was at, um, Bath, Exeter, and so and so was Gatland, and the chat was that he was um, looking at Sam Simmons, who was brilliant that day, but also mm. that he was going to give players like um, Marcus Smith and Joe Simmons, the two young English tens, a go. And I think he would, um, <laughs> you know, there's a mischievous side to Gatland, isn't there? And I think he'd be quite, um, he'd quite enjoy the irony of picking somebody like that for the Lions. You know, somebody he picked, um, Jamie George, wasn't started starting for. Um, wasn't starting for England um, until he was starting for the Lions and the Gatlands. So that he li- he likes that sort of storylines. But I'd really like to think that um, I think so- somebody kind of when you're thinking of Bolters, somebody like uh, Ryan Baird, given the way that uh, Tom Croft emerged in in South Africa yeah. in 2009, I think big performances from him, you know, in Europe could really count for a lot because. Um, that's kind of the, the next run down, and for whatever reason, you know, with more established guys ahead of him in, in the Test reckoning, you know, although he's in the Test re- reckoning, he's not starting and not influencing games, whereas he could for Leinster So, um, those sort of names could could maybe come come to the top of his thinking. But I think that Six Nations, given how small the margins were between the sides, I think the individual performances throughout the tournament will have really kind of shaped his shaped his thinking and shaped his squad.
0: Yeah. And a lot of people reckon that it's he would have formulated the squad more or less at the moment, like in his head, bar a few exceptions. And <clears throat> I'm just thinking, like with moving on to obviously focusing on the lines and the tour, and like it is more or less saying now that it will take place in South Africa every week. It it seems like it was going to be in a different place, and like whether it's going to be played in the uk or someone's back garden we didn't know the narrative kept changing and changing but it seems set to be played in south africa and if it goes ahead like firstly one thing that hasn't really been discussed is like the european game from a rugby point of view has been relatively you know consistent the six nations was brilliant gave players all the opportunities like bar maybe the saracens a disaster well for maybe Saracens it's yep. a disaster for the rest it's a it's a bonus but like from a South African playing point of view and I even had Malcolm Marks on the podcast about I'd say eight nine ten months ago and he was saying how one of the toughest things is is they had such a big colossal just buy-in towards the World Cup and there was a huge emotional attachment to it and they want to now basically do that all over again for the Lions tour but the issue is they have less time they're up against a quality opposition obviously being up against the Lions but a big issue is just the lack of time and the fact that so many of their key players are all over the world different situations different setups some in Japan some in the UK some in France some playing in South Africa that it may be difficult to nearly establish the same standards they had in that World Cup
1: Oh yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a huge logistical challenge, isn't it? I think that the, so the key guy in all of this, and ironically he's an ex saracen is so, um, one of the, one of the kind of, um, alongside Razi Erasmus, there was Aleb Walters, who was the strength and conditioning kind of lead for the box and the world in the lead to the world cup. He's left, he's gone to Leicester Tigers, but what he was, what he said, looking back at the campaign was that how, as you say, he needed to be across where all these guys were playing and be across kind of what they needed to do as far as fitness, when they came back in all together and they had that yeah. time together, which they probably won't get ahead of the lines, which they definitely won't get ahead of the lines. But, um, Alan Waters has been replaced by, um, Andy Edwards, who's, um, saracen's ex head of um conditioning you know he's he's kind of credited as a really integral part of their success over the years so he's a really really big figure now Razi erasmus and i always pronounce his name wrong jack near near oh um, yeah clearly tongue twister yeah <laughs> really really seriously sharp tactical minds and you never know sometimes when you have such a short lead in and such a focused lead in, and the kind of um, the goal is so, so kind of definitive. It's a three-test series for them. There will just be this really razor-sharp focus on on as far as their tactics. They won't have time to expand on the thing um, from the World Cup, but they do. They're kind of with South Africa, when you've got players like Faf de Klerk, when you've got players like Cheslin Colby, the attack almost takes care of itself. They've got these freakish kind of. Um, freakish athletes, really intuitive rugby players, and so that that side of things, you know, you'd, you'd expect them to to manufacture opportunities and be and take a few of them. Now they will they will re- also have a really really well drilled, really physical defence as well. So I'd expect them to have similar plans to. to the ones that carried them to the World Cup final with a few kind of trick players here and there. And that that's kind of, you'd say that would be kind of enough to take into a three-test series against an invitational side. And it's going to be really, really difficult. Um, and there's going to be probably uncertainty. I know they've said that it's going to be in South Africa now definitively, but there's going to be uncertainty right up to the start, I'd imagine. So psychologically, it's dealing with that as well, which is not going to be easy.
0: Yeah, and like even the potential of someone testing positive for COVID a few days before they're going to get vaccinated. There's loads of questions that I'll leave to other journalists to answer closer to the time. And one of the things I find interesting is a lot of people are speculating as to who's going to help out Gatland and who will be his backup team. And there's loads of names being thrown around uh, the pot like uh, Mitchell with England, I know Farrell has also been linked. There's nearly every every guy who is somewhat a respected coach is in the mix. But I remember even like from hearing players coming back, like in previous years, they've had some really, really strong coaches. And I know like Steve Borthwick. Unless he travels, he'll be a massive loss because all the players seem to rate him absolutely as high as the sky. And do you see? like there was rumors saying Gatlin was going to do a a Clive Woodward on it and bring nearly every name under the sun? Or do you think it's going to be very much since Gatlin's, who ultimately loves delegating, do you think he's just going to pick, you know, three or four really strong operators and, you know, set about a plan just to hopefully topple the, the box in their backyard?
1: Um, I think he likes. He likes. Um, I mean, yeah, that's very diplomatically put. He, li- he likes. <laughs> like, like he, he likes. He uh, needs. He likes. You know, a lot of his success is built off a massively charismatic defensive coach, whether that's Andy Farrell or whether that's Sean Edwards. So, and and he said kind of explicitly that he likes continuity. So. My colleague, Gavin Mayers kind of had the story that um, it was going to be Andy Farrell, John Mitchell, Gregor Townsend, Graham Roundtree and Neil Jenkins, I think. That was the squad. And if you think about the names I'd written down as far as sort of, you know, in in inverted commas, inform inform unit coaches for the World Cup uh, from the Six Nations. So Stephen Jones has looked after Wales Attack, which... um, Looked better than some of its parts. Had some really clever, clever little plans going on as far as their attacking kicking and as far as kind of their first phase stuff against France. I thought they were fantastic until they kind of fell away at the end. Um, ironically, it was probably their best performance. Um, John Fogarty looks after Ireland scrum, doesn't he? Previously, Leinster, and that's been brilliant. Um, and then defensively, uh, Scotland's defence was Steve Tandy, who's another Welsh guy, and that was that was you know really. Big, big improvements and kind of really effective as well. So I Stephen Jones would be the name I think maybe more likely if you think that Graham Roundtree um, is probably going to go on the back of that continuity that Gatlin likes um, and um, Steve Tandy probably wouldn't get in over Andy Farrell. But I mean, that was kind of in the mix. I wonder what do you, do you think of that because that was what was kind of in the mix when you're thinking about how Farrell's getting on as a head coach to kind of, and when that wasn't so certain before that England game, that seemed a bit uneasy that he was then going to head off to the, to the lions as a kind of, um, as a defense guy and sort of leave that role behind. Um, you're spot on about Borthwick's impact. He's has you know, he's, his loss has really been felt by England. I feel he's really popular with the players because of just how staunchly loyal he is. And he doesn't kind of, um, doesn't profess to be anything else, but just a a total geek. He just loves it, just mm-hmm. loves, loves a laptop, but is therefore the kind of level of clarity you get from him is apparently, is apparently fantastic. So yeah, I think, I think, yeah, Gatland will, he's, he's had, he's had Rob Howley on a few, on a couple of the previous tours, hasn't he? I, I can't see that happening again. So I think he'd have to look, if he does change things up, it will be an attack. And Stephen Jones is just a name that kind of springs to mind unless he goes kind of completely rogue. But I mean, I mean, it's a it's a mark of the year we've had that Scott Robertson was in the mix at once. Yeah, I remember that. But it seemed to kind of go away pretty pretty quickly. So, um, yeah, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but that's, that seems to be the way it's going, is kind of consistency and maybe one or two new names. And I do feel that whoever goes, it would just be good to have in-depth knowledge of every nation because we've seen how, how close these nations are, given the kind of... Um, the way the Six Nations went. So if at least one voice is kind of in a player's corner um, for any selection meeting, I think that would only be beneficial to the Lions.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. It, it, it is very much it's nearly like the playing situation where it can change very quickly. And there was a lot of speculation about Farrell going off and tour and a lot of people questioned it. This was prior to the England win, but... People are saying, why is he going to go off and dedicate two, three months of his time to a different team if he's not got his own house in order? So it'll be interesting to see if he goes or not. And I suppose just one nearly dark horse, and to be honest, if I labeled him as a dark horse to his face, he'd probably knock me in the face. But like Paul O'Connell is a guy who, like from even speaking to people within the camp in Ireland, has just completely just rejuvenated the squad, like morale, individual, massive emphasis on the breakdown. And I know um, Mitchell did the same with England with the back row players, but O'Connell's had an influence there. And then ultimately the line out for Ireland, which used to be so so clean and so pre- precise, went through a blip there um, after the World Cup and during the World Cup. And then since he's come in, it's been attack and defense absolutely sublime. And the one thing South Africa are going to be is outrageous at the scrum and pinpoints both sides of the ball at the line. At. So that could be an appointment maybe, especially with his good relationship with Gatlin. That could happen, but we'll have to wait and see. And on the playing side of things, Charlie, I know you have put together a bit of a team like dear. Mm-hmm. I know this will change after this weekend of rugby and I'm sure Will Greenwood then will tweeze his next one the following week. Like, yeah. how do you see that 15 going and I think there is form does have to be taken into account but when I always have the debates with any of my friends or anyone involved in rugby and you've alluded to it as well you do need to remember who's going to be picking this team ultimately it's going to be Warren Gatland and there's certain players that he's just going to say listen if if I've got Etzebet and stuff running down my channel, I want a guy who I know is going to do that and tackle and do the basics and just basically rise to the challenge. So I'd be intrigued to see what you went with from a, a starting fifteen point of view. Okay, mate.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd just to, just to, just to kind of echo your thoughts on Paul O'Connor, I think he had an awesome tournament. He was the, he'd be the kind of the, the other informed coach for sure. Okay, so this team, I mean when he text me to say. Um, to pick one, I, I did it, and then have hated it ever since. It's kind of looked back at it loads of times and hated it ever since. And then yeah. um, tweeted somebody that kind of that pack, and people were you know, people were up in arms. I was getting text saying asking why I'd left people out. So but anyway, here we go. I haven't changed it. So I've uh, gone Stuart Hogg fifteen, um, resummit uh, fourteen. Um, just over Anthony Watson, thirteen. Robbie Henshaw. I had him twelve, but just the way he defended for thirteen against England just totally dictated everything to England. He was brilliant. Um, twelve. I've gone with uh, Jonathan Davies, uh, which I don't, I don't know. That's the one. One I'm not really sure of, just because um, I had him at thirteen and then swapped him back to twelve to get Henshaw at thirteen. And I just I think twelve and nine um, are the two areas that. Um, could be anyone could be anyone could be absolutely anyone anyway um 11 I've gone Josh Adams over Duon van der Merwe 10 I've gone bigger for now um Interesting. yeah um 9 Murray um 1 having said that uh people are placing too much stock on Premiership form I've gone Joe Marler. um that could I can't see him wanting to tour though so that could be that could be Win Jones it could be Keen Healy could be anyone. Um, 2 I've gone Cowan Dicky. Um, Ken Owens was uh, the one that people were texting me to say, "Get him in." You're an idiot. Um, <laughs> uh, three, three furlong. Four. Alan wynne Jones. Five. Tige Byrne. Uh, six. Josh Navidi. Seven. Hamish Watson. Eight. Talupe Falatau. I think okay, I'm so- probably. I think I'm probably short of, short of line out. So. I think, however, it happens, Byrne might be going to six. I just, for me, the kind of the big ones that I feel like I've left out are um, Tipperick and then three locks. So Ryan, Henderson, and Toji. Um, and then I'd say maybe Tom Curry in the bracket below that are probably unlucky, hmm. but God knows. I mean, it's, it's a mug's game, isn't it?
0: Yeah, no matter what you do, like you're going to end up looking like an absolute mug. And it's even interesting around that. And I think one of the big ones is the second rows, as you said. Like if you're picking it now, Wynn Jones is probably in there based off the Six Nations. And then like Henderson was absolutely world class, probably mm-hmm. the best second row in the competition. Tyg Byrne then as well, close second. Yeah. But then as you said, does that give you enough in the line out? Do you need someone like a Tipperick at six? who's a very good line out operator. Does someone like Omani come in? Yeah. You know, I don't think he should, but like, does that line out option need to, do you even consider maybe a Toje at six? And <laughs> um, there are a huge amount. The one thing I would say, I don't, I think this has got another, and I'm not saying the guys, I would just, I would be surprised if I saw Cowan Dickey. Yeah, wearing that two jersey mainly down to the fact, and I I've always been a massive fan of him. I still think, regardless of the dip with Saracens, I just think Jamie George, mm-hmm. everything about him screams line test starters. In his set piece is always absolutely spot on. Probably yeah. the best line out thrower in the business, and just even just his experience. Because the one thing that could happen, based on the form, is like if you say don't have a win Jones in there if you don't have some of these experienced guys, it could be quite a inexperienced pack, all things considered, based mm-hmm. on previous years where you would have looked around and had the likes of Phil Vickery screaming at the beast or Paul O'Connell in the row or yeah. whoever in the back of Jamie Heaslip at eight. You could find that one to eight, it could be just a mixture of all ages test cap experience. So it is, it is fascinating. And I also think, like if you're going on tens at the moment, I do agree with your ten pick. But it is it's nearly like it's yeah, it's if you're gonna tell Owen Farrell and Sexton that they're not gonna be starting at ten for the Lions are starting in the team, they're definitely gonna pipe up and try to do something about it. And one of my um one of my dark horses, which you mentioned, I do think I think Vander Merva has got all the makings of a Warren Gatland yeah. winger. Yeah, and like he just, he just scream, screams test line under Warren Gatland. He's big, he's strong, good kick chase. Like his error count, he does make a few knock ons the odd time. But like Jesus, if you're telling me Warren Gatland doesn't like a overgrown giant on the wing, you've got another <laughs> thing coming. And then also another dark horse, and it may be too late for him. Uh, Manu Tuolangi, I heard he may be back what April, in yeah. May. If he could get a bit of form going, I know at sale. They'll have aspirations to make playoffs.
1: Yeah,
0: he could be another guy to be thrown in the mix because yeah. if you even watch him or even speak to anyone who plays him, he is his enemy number one. You just simply don't want to allow he lining up against you. But mm-hmm. it is, it is fascinating. In two weeks' time, sure, you could be called a genius, or you could be getting more trolls on Twitter saying this yeah. and that. So.
1: Yeah, very much kind of, you, you can you can go out of your mind, can't you, thinking about how do I balance a fictional back row that I'm never <laughs> pick and stuff and sort of having all those sorts of questions. But the coolest thing about the Lions are obviously, I mean, there's loads of cool things about the Lions, but the the bolters that come from left field to be in the squad particularly, but I think even more interesting are the ones that become test Lions on the tour and, and how that, selection it's shorter this time only eight games but um how that develops while they're out there and while they're together in training and you're spot on i mean you've, you look at some players and you forget that you know they've played you know, th- that they've had three three lines test behind them some some have got more falatel has either either got five or six i think mm. um yes yeah, crazy but all uh, all good fun ahead
0: yeah, it'd be fascinating. We may need to, if it gets confirmed, we may need to have a follow-up about a week before so we can somewhat get our predictions on point. But, no, Charlie, that's more or less it from me. I want to thank you again for coming on. I know it's been a, a busy few weeks, no doubt, and it's probably just going to be busy now from here on in with Europe Absolutely. playoffs and the lines, which uh, I don't think we're going to complain too much about. But, as yeah. always, very grateful you to come on and pass your wisdom on. And I'm sure the listeners will get great joy out of listening to it. Both sides of uh, the Irish Sea going at it. Nice one, mate.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: No.